This morning we will be reading a text from the Epistle of James, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Faith, would you pray with me? Almighty and gracious God, for this day we give you thanks for the beauty of words that remind us to sing with joy. We give you thanks for the power of your text to reveal us. We give you thanks. And now we pray that your living word would breathe life into the time that we spend in worship today. Make us yours. This is what we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we are wrapping up a sermon series today, friends. It's called Christianity's Family Tree. And for those of you that have been with us, and for those of you who haven't, let me just kind of remind us that we're talking about the history of the tradition of Christianity. We have kind of hit the highlights all through the last four weeks. And today, we're going to be talking about the last reformer I'm going to teach you about, which is John Wesley. Brought my little John Wesley bobblehead to uh, keep us company today. But he's the founder of the Methodist movement. Okay? So we're going to be talking about who we are and where we come from, and that's how we'll finish up today. But first, I need your help. Are you ready? Okay, so this is a participatory sermon as we begin this morning. I've got two phrases, and I want to see if you're familiar enough with them that you can finish them. Are you ready? Phrase one, put your money where your Okay, you know that one. How about this? If you're going to talk the talk, you've got to... Okay. The reason those are so familiar, I mean, pretty much, I think everyone kind of knew those phrases, is that we wish people would just do what they say, right? Don't we? And so we have these little cliche phrases that we use to to remind ourselves, right, first, but then others, second, that it's important to make what you do, what you say, match what you do. And that really is the message of James. The book of James is a message that says faith and works go together. You cannot separate the two. The focus of today's sermon, which is the Methodist movement, I've called it a further resistance. You might remember last week we talked about the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther. And and the Methodist movement was kind of a further resistance on past that because Martin Luther really hated the book of James. He called it an epistle of straw. I guess that's, you know, like a curse word back then. Um, you know, he, just, he was like, oh, that's just terrible because, because, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. You cannot earn your way to heaven. So, so works, just, you just cannot focus on good works. And that's very important in Lutheran theology even to this day, right? But John Wesley came along about 200 years later, and he said, here's the thing. If there's been a transformation in your heart, there ought to be a transformation in your life. And so he loved the book of James. In fact, John Wesley, in his journal, this is what he called it, a remedy, a corrective. 
The book of James is a corrective against the general temptation of leaving off good works in order to increase faith. He says, no, 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 the two go together. They're hand in hand. The book of James is crystal clear that faith and works, you can't have one without the other. In fact, James would say that when you do, your religion is worthless. And he talks in his uh, epistle that we read today about how important it is to have religion that is pure and undefiled. That certainly reflects an inner faith. It's not like all we do is works, okay? Faith is important, but without works, faith is dead. That's what uh, the book of James would say. And that was very important to John Wesley, who we're going to be looking at today. So let's take a moment to kind of look at where we are in our timeline. Uh, You're going to see here, this is the Great Schism. Notice there were a few little offshoots before that, but this was the first thousand years of Christianity. And then we get to the Great Schism, where the Western Church breaks off and the Eastern Church breaks off. The Western Church ended up being the Roman Catholic Church. They were headquartered in Roman. Rome. We talked about Catholic being universal, that that was the Western Church, and that's what Martin Luther was a part of. And so last week we were kind of right in in this area, the Reformation in the 16th century. And notice all of this that comes off of the Reformation. We talked about how last week that when Martin Luther broke away from the Roman Catholic Church or the Western Church, it opened this Pandora's box. And at that point, then, there were all these different, and we call them today denominations, but offshoots. And we're using the metaphor of the tree, so we would call them branches, right, of, of Christianity uh, that began as one church with Jesus. And then became two in 1054, and now in 1500s and, and following, it becomes all of these. And today, we're, we're right here, we're going to talk about Anglicanism and the Church of England. So when the Reformation moved into England, and I don't have time to go into all that history, it's fascinating though, so I would encourage you to Google English Reformation. But it was different than in the rest of Europe because the king in England was the one, King Henry VIII, was the one who decided that he really didn't want to be Roman Catholic or a part of the Western Church anymore, so he broke off. But his fuss was not with the church. He liked the church. And so the Church of England was very much like the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, when that branch moved over to the states, uh, before we were the United States, you know, it was the Episcopal Church. So if you've been in the Episcopal Church, you're going to know, oh, that's very, you know, that's the Church of England. That's the Anglican Church here in the United States. It's called the Episcopal Church. That's where we come from. Because John Wesley, our founder, was a priest in the Church of England. He was born into the Church of England. He was a PK, actually. His father, Samuel, was a a priest in the Church of England. It's a state church. So the leadership happened with whoever the monarch was and the Archbishop of Canterbury. They lead together. It's all supported by the uh, local governments. They pay their taxes, and that supports the church. Can you imagine that today? I mean, friends, what if your taxes went to turn the lights on at this church? Wow. That's what we're talking about here, okay? It's the Church of England. Very different than what was happening in the rest of Europe with Lutheranism and Calvinism and Anabaptist and and all, all the other pieces of this up here, kind of in that that corner. Right, so John Wesley was born into the Church of England, 
That was his tradition. Loved the Church of England. Never wanted to be anything other than a priest in the Church of England. He just wanted the Church of England to not be so stuffy. Do we ever want that? Like, you know, we just kind of, we're like, church, lighten up, will ya? Because the Church of England was rather stuffy. And they also were off, off limits to those in their society that were the poorest among them. At that point in time, there were no protections for workers. So the poorest of the poor worked seven days a week. They didn't have time to come to church. And so those who could go to church, those were people of means. And John Wesley was saying, hey, wait a minute, that, that's not okay. You know, we, we are the church. We need to go to where the people are. Radical, radical idea of his day. So he was that kind of reformer. He wanted to reform from within the church. So I want to talk uh, today about just some of the hallmarks of the early Methodist movement. And remember, it's not a denomination. John Wesley doesn't want to start a new church, so I think movement is a better word rather than calling it a Methodist denomination. That didn't happen until much later. But this was John Wesley's early movement to reform the Church of England. One of the uh, hallmarks of this movement was preaching. John Wesley really believed that the spoken word the, the word read and proclaimed in front of God's people when there's a community there to hear it, that the Holy Spirit acts in a very powerful way when that happens and that hearts are convicted and converted to Christ. And that that, that event, it's, it's not a speech, it's not a lecture, it's an event. The Holy Spirit is the one directing it. And then it, as that moves between the preacher and the people, that something significant happens there. And so John Wesley would preach at any and every opportunity. He actually, along with George Whitfield, started what was called open-air preaching. They didn't go to the church and preach. Radical, I know. But that's not where the people were. The people were out in the open fields, particularly the miners who were the poorest of the poor. And so John Wesley would go out into the open fields and, and preach, and people would come to know Christ, and it was amazing, and, and, and lives were changed. It's reported that in John Wesley's life, he rode over 250,000 miles on horseback. How many of you all have a car that has 250,000 miles on it? Anybody? Yeah? That's, that's awesome, isn't it? That takes a while. And that's a car. He rode that on horseback so that he could go from place to place to place to place to place and preach. That's how important he thought preaching was. So that's very important in the Methodist movement uh, formed around this, these preaching experiences. Out of those preaching experiences, when people would uh, come to know Christ, he realized that they were not going to be able to live that faithfully without a small group that would hold them accountable. Uh, previously, I've taught you about the class meetings. So if, if you haven't heard that part, I would just Google class meeting John Wesley and you'll get to see how he would do this. But it was brilliant because what he realized was is that you don't change your life in a day. Most of us don't. That it takes time. And you need people who will mentor you people who are maybe a little further along in the spiritual journey. And so he would form these small groups of no more than 12 people, and they would have a leader from within their group, someone who you know, felt called to be that class leader, and they would meet together weekly, and they would ask each other questions of accountability. The, the primary one was, how is it with your soul? 
They're not teaching a lesson. It's not about learning. It's not about acquiring information. It's about being present and accountable with one another and caring for one another in that, that group setting. And that's really what allowed the Methodist movement to sustain over the long period of time. And it really wasn't, and that, that's the way it came over to the states at that period of time, or the colonies. And as we became the United States, we really didn't lose that until the Sunday school movement came in in the early 1900s. But before that, our small groups were class meetings. And that was really a hallmark of the Methodist movement and allowed it to be sustainable. Finally, singing. Oh, my goodness. Methodists love to sing. Don't we still love to sing? Oh, the best thing, if you're a little bored, and it's okay if you are, uh, pull out your hymnal, and in the very beginning, you'll get John Wesley's instructions for singing. He talks about how to sing a hymn. Because we Methodists, we sing. We like that. Uh, John Wesley's brother, Charles, was a prolific hymn writer and has written many of the hymns in our hymnal and even many that are outside of our hymnal. Um, ones you might recognize, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. Anybody know that one? Oh, love that hymn. How about Easter morning, Christ the Lord is Risen Today? That's Charles Wesley hymn. Uh, a Charge to Keep I Have, one of my personal favorites, a little less known, but I still think it's a good hymn. How about uh, Christmas Carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Charles Wesley wrote those hymns. So this is the flavor of this early Methodist movement. They were, everyone was a member of the Church of England if you lived there, if you were a citizen. Okay, that didn't mean you went, that didn't mean it was a part of your life. It just meant that, you know, you're all a member of the Church of England if you live there. But then there were these movement, uh, there's this movement of reform that John Wesley was leading, and it looked a lot like they would get together for preaching, then they would meet in these small groups, and they sang a lot together to connect them to the Spirit of God uh, that he felt like was so lacking in the church of his day. Oh, I love the Methodist Church. I didn't grow up United Methodist. I chose that later in life, and as I was reading about some of the things that are most important to us and our values, um, and then the history of John Wesley, I thought, oh, that's me. I, I like the both and of the United Methodist Church. It's not either or. We're not an either or church. Now, it's harder when you're a both and church because your tent is bigger, as they say. But I, I like that. I, I like the, the emphasis of we're not going to, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. We're not going to just say, well, we can't do that, so we're going to get rid of that. No, we actually need both. Both and. So that's what we're going to talk about now because really the most important thing that we need to know about the history of this Methodist movement is what does it tell us about where we are today? I don't know if you've noticed this, friends, but the United Methodist Church is in decline and has been since 1968. A long period of decline. I happen to think that the United Methodist Church has these resources from our history which could bring us alive again. Wouldn't that be amazing? Do you know what the early Methodists were called? Enthusiasts. Do you think people would say that about us if they came to visit our church? We have some first-time guests here today. We'll ask them after the service. Do you think we're very enthusiastic? Well, I don't know. We should be we got a lot to be excited about, really, as a church. So I want to talk with you about some of the things that were key in this early Methodist movement that I think might help shape our future together. 
Number one, the early Methodists had proximity to the least of these, as Jesus names them in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. It's a beautiful chapter. I encourage you to read it, read it on your own. But we instinctively know that there are those, even in our backyard, who are in need. The Methodist church got close. I should say the Methodist movement. The Methodist movement got close to those folk. One of the things that John Wesley did in his early college little small group that he and Charles uh, organized was they would go see people in prison and take them food and care for them and help them if they were sick, and they went to the prisons. The early Methodist movement was famous for starting schools so that children could learn how to read and starting hospitals. In fact, in this country, most of the hospitals and the schools at private universities were started by the Methodists. Because we know how important that is to be able to help people move out of their own agency, not just because we would give it to them, but out of their own agency into a better life for themselves. The other beautiful thing about the small groups, these class meetings, was that there were no socioeconomic status divisions. And so these class meetings would have people who were very wealthy with people who were very poor, and they met together every week. Wow. Think about the power of that, friends. And I think that this part of who we are, that they got close to those that most needed the grace of God. Whether it be in a physical touch or some food or a place to stay or whatever they needed, they got close and they did it. And I said this to you last week, I'm going to say it to you again. Four weeks out of the year, we have the families who in Tulsa are most in need. They are homeless. And their children stay right here in our building for seven days. That's called proximity. That's what that's called. And it's going to happen next Sunday for the next following week. They'll be here. And you know who's going to be close to them? Who's going to stay the night with them in case anything happens so that there will be someone from the church that could help them and have resources that they need. Somebody will bring them dinner and, and help, help them make sure their kids get what they need to eat, and somebody will do fellowship time with them, make sure they have what they need. You know, we will host them. Do you know who does that? Raise your hands, Faith. Right? We do that. Because we get close. We are in proximity. And not, not holding them off, far off, but saying, no, no, no. We are in this together. And that was a part of the early Methodist movement. Another piece that was so powerful about the early Methodist movement, and I have a word up there that even a lot of us are going to go, what is that? Laity, okay? But every religious tradition has this sort of distinction between those who are set apart for holy service. If you read in the Old Testament, it was the priests of the temple. Okay? They're set apart for kind of the holy service to, to be the intercessor between God and the people. And then you have everybody else. But remember, what I told you last week about the Protestant Reformation is that at that point in time, the Western church, particularly, had set apart people for all the work of the church. The priests did everything. And Martin Luther said, no, 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 no. Everybody receives God's call upon their life in their baptism. They all have a call to ministry, and they all can do the work. The difference in the Methodist movement was somebody had to do it, because all the priests of the Church of England were so mad at John Wesley, there's no way they were going to help him. There weren't any priests. 
And so, you know who did it? You know who did the preaching? Laity. You know who did the pastoral care? Laity. You know who did all the organizing and, and all the figuring out of the small groups and when they were going to meet and who's going to be the class leader and how the structure was going to go and all that? Laity. Preaching, teaching, pastoral care, all the life of the church. That's why circuit writers worked when the Methodist movement came over to the United States because you didn't have to have preachers. The preacher rode the circuit and was with you, oh, about once a month. Guess how, how often we have communion? Oh, about once a month. Because the only thing the clergy did, baptism, holy communion. The people of the church did all the rest. And you know what that allowed? Growth. They didn't have buildings. They didn't need buildings. They were able to grow by leaps and bounds, both in England and here when the movement came over to the United States. And I think that it was because the lady were in charge. I'm all in favor of that, by the way. Both personal transformation and holy living, so important to this early Methodist movement. You do need to have a transformation in your heart. You need to have that recognition that Jesus died for you. And the grace of that is absolutely overwhelming that God would do that for you. For you. And would do it all over again for you. And, and when that recognition meets your heart, you can't help but be grateful and respond with a life of holiness. And that's what John Wesley would say. It needs to be both. It needs to be internal in your heart. There needs to be a change. But then it needs to look different on the outside too. So these are things about this early Methodist movement that I think are really important in shaping our future. In my opinion, I think it positions us as a movement. Can we be a movement again? Can we not need all the trappings of denomination and just be a movement again? If we could, I think those things position us to meet the deep need of our culture and our society, at least in North America. I can really only speak, you know, to our context. But what I know is that four of us, myself, Pastor Heather, Hannah Phillips, and Ruth Stortz, we were in Kansas City over the last three days, and one of the speakers at our event was David Brooks. Anybody ever heard of David Brooks? New York Times columnist, uh, speaks on NPR quite a bit. You know, it's kind, of, it's kind of that voice of the culture, very secular in the way he does that. And he spoke to our group, and this is what he said. He said, you know what? The world is crying out for a vocabulary of grace. There's so many in our world, they wouldn't say they need church, but they would say they need meaning. They would say they need purpose. They would say they need community and authentic relationships that count. They need that. And the church has it. And sometimes we're like, oh, we love ourselves. We'll just keep it right here. Okay? And you can come get someone you need it. Wow. The Methodist movement went to the people. And, and they offered this vocabulary of grace in ways that made sense in the vernacular of the day. And it was beautiful. They got close 
to the least of these. They were led by their own people. They didn't need preachers, pastors, clergy, credentials, blah, blah, blah. The laity led them. And, and they encouraged each other in this idea of personal transformation and holy living. And it was beautiful. And I think that the more we could grab a hold of that, the more we would be well positioned to offer the world what it needs so much. And friends, if that's not the reason we're church, I don't know why we are. I, I mean, I love you all. I want to see you every single Sunday. But you know what my heart is for? Those who aren't here yet. Because that's what the church is about. It's about those who aren't here yet. So, I want to show you a picture as we wrap up today. Do you recognize this? It's right here in Tulsa. It's the Council Oak. Very important part of our heritage here in Tulsa, particularly for the Creek Nation and the Muscogee uh, and their tribe. That is an amazing tree. If you have ever seen it, it is huge. And, and so when I moved back to Tulsa to take the appointment here at Faith, I went down there and I saw it. And I stood underneath it and I went, oh my gosh. Do you know, some of those branches are like 20 feet away from the trunk. So I started thinking about, okay, Christianity's family tree and how does this metaphor work? And what I realized was no matter how far the branch gets away from the trunk. Without the trunk, it dies. If one of those branches gets cut off, it can't live. Huh. What happens in the church when we decide that our identity as a branch is more important than being connected to the trunk? And we prune carelessly. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, can I get an amen on that? Yeah. So I would offer us a caution today. As church with a big C, remember we talked about that. The United Methodist Church, the denomination, the overhead, the institution, the structure, and all the stuff. We should be careful that we don't get so locked into our identity as a branch that we forget that we are connected to the trunk. And you know what the trunk is? The church with the little c. The body of Christ. The hands and feet of the one who died for us. For the world. We need to stay connected there. So I want to offer us that caution. And then I want to offer us this encouragement because this also came to me. How do you take care of a tree? Right? You do prune, right? The branches. But you know what you have to pay the most attention to? The roots. If you want a tree to grow, you have to water deeply. Does anybody know this? If your tree is, you have a sprinkler system, what happens? The roots, they come up to the surface, and then the mower whacks them off, and, you know, it's terrible. Or the weed eater, or what? No, you care for the roots. And I thought about that in terms of the United Methodist Church. That sometimes what we want to care for is our branches. And we forget to care for the roots. So that's what I want to encourage us to do, just as the community today, that we could return again to the, to the trunk, to our identity, as the hands and feet of Christ, and say, we want to be a movement. We want to be a movement that reaches out to the least of these. 
and, that, and a movement that every single person has a place and a reason for being. And that for those in our world that most need the vocabulary of grace, they would feel welcome among us to receive it. That'd be awesome. Amen.